Welcome to Queer Narratives Beirut, a podcast about gender and sexual diversity in Lebanon's capital. You're listening to episode 9, Art and Rhizomatters, with Iztihar Afuni in conversation with me, Joy Stacey. Hi, I'm Izdihar Afuni. I'm a Palestinian Jordanian artist and independent curator, and I come from a research background. Um, and uh, I work with uh, corporeality, biopolitics, biosurveillance, um, and the body in pain, um, which are essentially what I did is that I, I just had a bunch of interests and I decided to throw them all in the same fucking pot, which um, has been has been quite interesting because I've had to justify it every step of the way. So it came almost from a point of, of laziness that, hey, I like these things. How can I combine them together? And then that led to a lot of labor. So where did these interests start? Well, um, we, we were chatting about something earlier that I thought was quite funny because I, I mentioned to you that I, I grew up in Jordan uh, for the most part and, um, and uh, I had a very interesting upbringing because I, I just, just absolutely flat out refused to do things the right way <laughs> or, or in any conventional sense. And I think it, my parents were a little bit um, amused and a bit worried. I think they're still a little bit worried and amused about some of the the fashion choices and the choices in the media that I consumed. And I had a massive poster of Halle Berry as Catwoman with a with a whip just over my bed when I was about eleven years old. Which is it's a horrible film, by the way. I found this out as an adult when I was younger. I thought it was an amazing film. What was the film? Uh, Catwoman. Oh, right. with Halle Berry as yeah. Catwoman. Yeah, it's terrible. She won like a Razzie for it. It's horrible. <laughs> so it's just the image. Yeah, I thought it was the best film ever, but it was a fucking terrible film because you know she was she was dressed up in like a leather cat suit and, and wielding a whip, and I fell in love instantly. <laughs> awesome. So why don't we, if we're going to base the conversation on rhizomes, why don't we explain what a rhizome is, and then we can use Halle Berry as our starting point. Halle Berry, the rhizome. Uh, um, okay, so so a rhizome is, um, or the way I I sort of understood it, um, because there is a biology there is a biology term, and then there's the philosophical term, which is taken from the biology term. Uh, but the philosophy term um, was coined by uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. Um, Basically, it's a it's a continuously growing web of connections that just sort of sprouts out in a in a horizontal way, as opposed to so so sort of like a ginger root, as opposed to um, just a regular bush, which sort of grows in a there's a root and then there's an end point or there's a definitive end point. So, what is the, <laughs> what are the implications in your work for using the idea of the rhizome? Is it like a kind of you follow one connection to the next, or is it more complex than that? Um, I think I, I started thinking about it um, when I wanted to expand on a project that I'm working on called uh, that I was working on during my master's degree called Thicker Than Blood, 
a friend of mine pointed out to me that, that the uh, Israeli Defense Forces used uh, Deleuze Guattarian philosophy and the idea of rhizomes to uh, think about the way they structure the military. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. How does that work? So um, instead of sort of thinking about the military as a military, you, you think about how it might how it can infiltrate all manner of civilian life, which is essentially what the IDF do, and that's why they're such a sophisticated, they're the most sophisticated sort of like military structure in the world. They go out to um, Canada and the US and they give conferences on how to think about military in a different way and in a very uh, non-hierarchical, non like it's not a very standardised, cut and dry way. It's like it's thinking about it's not thinking about walls as, as, as barriers, it's about thinking how, how we can walk through them. And I, and I know that sounds a little bit um, conceptual, but it, it is applied in a very real sense um, and in a way that they would, they would infiltrate like education, uh, protests, uh, you know, it's not just using propaganda, it's also like blackmailing queer Palestinians to work as informants, like these are all um, very non-conventional ways of uh, doing military practice. And the way that they um, sort of program uh, young, young men and women from a very young age, children, and set them up to become future soldiers. Like I saw this meme actually a few days ago, and it was like posted by an Israeli right-wing like Facebook group and it was just a fetus and it had this slogan underneath it like future IDF soldier and the fetus was wearing like a like a, a hard hat so that's that's, that's pretty up. that's pretty fucked up yeah it's pretty fucked up but it's also you know that's that's just kind of how they that's that's why people there are so rooted in this military state and they're so attached to it it's because it it starts from from um, conception almost. Well, that's really interesting you know? because um, well, one of the well, kind of slightly old school, I suppose, Palestinian narratives was the kind of mothers of martyrs narratives, and like um, the, the, the the mother Palestinian mothers would be celebrated if their sons died in battle because they their job was to bear the fighters essentially. So that's a really odd mirroring. Mm. That's really, really complex. Yeah, using a fetus though, wow. And when you think of, actually, now that you say that, I, it just makes me think of the way um, uh, Daesh programs young fighters as well. And you sort of, you, you grow up to be uh, a fighter within the caliphate, if you grow up within the caliphate, or you, you're recruited from other countries to fight for them. And so the fighter is the identity, and so your identity is essentially to fight and protect whatever um, you feel directly associated with. When I was uh, in my master's degree, um, I started working on a project called Thicker Than Blood. And um, I, it started off as a collaborative project. Um, with another academic and um, it came from two different places for me. One of them was wanting to uh, instigate a conversation about race uh, in 
uh, in a way that didn't it didn't necessarily make people put people in a corner and talk about race. The thing about British people. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, I'm tell not me, British. I'm not me. British people, but I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> is, um, you can't just, you know, I'm just one of these people that I just want to get you to talk. Just talk to me. Just talk to me. Just talk, you know. And you can't do that with British people because they're like, oh, 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 and they get a bit weird. And so, you know, you <laughs> yeah. either need to get them completely fucking wasted. You have to, that's why we drink so much. Yeah, you need to get them plastered. It's to a get pretty, them to it's a pretty open secret. Yeah. Yeah. Or. You know, I couldn't really pass it off in my degree as I just got a bunch of people wasted and asked them about race. So I decided to do the next best thing, which was um, take a sample of their blood as they entered my exhibition and then test it for white blood cells. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So Did you get, like, medically certified to do that? Yeah. For, no, I had a medical professional uh, take a capillary sample of blood and, um, and then I tested it on site and then based on the number of white blood cells that each member of this, the audience of this exhibition that I'd curated had, they could access different parts of the exhibition. They had completely different experiences. So it was almost like a lived experience of uh, racial profiling, of genetic profiling, but without necessarily talking about it. And that kind of, I didn't, then that, that kind of set the tone and I didn't need to work any harder than that, other than curating these experiences, because people started having these conversations by themselves, amongst themselves, because it, it hit a nerve. You know, when you're giving your blood, it's a very personal thing. Mm. And so you feel uh, committed to the project. You feel engaged with the project in a way that you otherwise might not have been. Um, and so I did this twice. Uh, and the artists that I curated in England were a bunch of incredible, mostly female and queer artists who responded to the idea of uh, the body as a tool of the state, which um, was a continuation of my research on, on, um, on uh, governmentality and biopower, which kind of, and torture and, and, and um, surveilled bodies and imprisoned bodies. And so there were a lot of artists who were working with the idea of female violence and the state or the, the, the female body as a tool of the state which is very interesting. Um, and the context was that we had kind of um, created this mini state where people had to play by our rules and had different privileges within that state. So it was interesting because it, it was... Um, I, I found it to be quite subversive uh, because it was queer women who were running the show. So that was interesting to kind of flip that power uh, uh, play on its head. Um, and uh, with the second exhibition, people were who were in the lowest white blood cell account were interrogated for a good amount of time. And if you're interested in seeing that, you can go to my website <laughs> and check it out. The interrogations are up there. But... Um, People were sort of asked uh, questions in a similar manner to how the UK border agency um, interrogated uh, uh, detainees, uh, Somalian detainees, um, queer detainees, people seeking asylum. Um, and But it was played up within a very uh, specific uh, aesthetic um, way. And so it was interesting to see how people engaged with it because it was familiar, but it was unfamiliar at the same time for a lot of people. There were quite a few 
people who came to the exhibition who were people of color, who were immigrants, who were queer. And I think they engaged with it um, in a very emotional way, which was so, so beautiful to see. So beautiful to see. Um, and I think that was, for me as an artist, that was the most amazing feeling, is um, people engaging with the work in their own way as opposed to engaging with what I was trying to say. I've been doing all this research and I don't... There isn't one specific thing that I'm trying to say. It's more about wanting to see what people have to say about these things, wanting to hear about their experiences about it. And that's, um, and that's why, you know, I am, I am so compelled to bring this project to Beirut. I'm so compelled to establish this project here because um, there is so much to engage with, with um, the way uh, Palestinian refugees are uh, treated here and their experiences here and the way Lebanese people see the occupation in Palestine. I think that there is, um, there have been different, there are different ways of understanding it and there are different ways of either, you know, benefiting from it as well politically and economically, which, um, which is, I think, worth talking about and I think worth exploring in an artistic sense. I came in I came in from a painting practice and I kind of wanted to I you know a lot of the research that I did in my undergraduate degree was on uh, the idea of the body in pain and um the idea of torture being a very hidden thing and what I wanted to do was create an iconography of the tortured body so you don't when 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 torture happens and on a on an institutional level it's something that's very uh, hidden, it's something that happens behind closed doors, and in a way, you're kind of unmaking what Elaine Scarry, who I used to love and now I don't like as much, but she, she referred to torture as unmaking the world of, of, the, of, the, of the person who's being tortured. But it happens in a way that's so hidden that it has no effect on the outside world. And so what I wanted to do, and what I found quite interesting during my research is when the Abu Ghraib scandal hit in uh, 2004, was it? Bush era, yeah. Um, the images were kind of circulated in such an in insane scale that they stopped, that the images themselves stopped really, uh, they weren't looked at, in a, it wasn't like a sort of critical lens on the image, it just mm. became another image that was... Uh, taken into the American visual uh, consciousness without having that critical view of it. And it's really weird because there was um, a couple of films like Captivity that came out in the US afterwards that were very much with it, along the lines of like torture porn, you know, is that how can we capitalize on the fact that there was a scandal regarding torture in the US? And um, when they came out, a lot of people really cheered for it. And I mean, Bush won a second term afterwards. There was no huge scandal. Um, Rumsfeld, who had essentially known about this and had almost ordered this, these group of like hick kids from the, I don't know, fucking... Wisconsin or where I don't fucking know where they were from they're just fucking <laughs> like they don't you know they, they 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 were just a bunch of 
of uh, kids like Lindy England, and they didn't really um, know what they were doing. They just know, knew that they were, those were a bunch of like uh, Arabs. They thought that that automatically meant that they were Muslim, and therefore we're going to humiliate them by using their bodies against them. We're going to humiliate the men by putting them in positions that were um, reminiscent of of, uh, of uh, homosexual sex practices. We're going to make them wear. Uh, women's underwear we're gonna cover them in feces and make them walk around um, so it's all about bodily humiliation and bodily torture and when these images were um, they, they were exposed uh, a lot of the American public responded in a similar fashion and uh, that's when the slogan came out that, that um, waterboarding is uh, baptizing terrorists with freedom which is just fucking disgusting. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. And there was outrage from, from the liberal press. And Susan Sontag wrote a wonderful um, essay for the New York Times uh, called Regarding the Torture of Others, which is really worth reading um, and kind of details the aftermath of, of how these images were consumed and we've just fallen off topic again, I just went into this, but basically I did a bunch of uh, works responding to uh, how these images were consumed uh, in the Western press. I was living in the West at the time, I was living in England, um, and I kind of made a bunch of images to respond to that, and there were very large paintings of, uh, of these prisoners uh, by creating an iconography of the othered body and by trying to create a visual iconography of this. And the paintings are very large, and I wanted them to kind of, like, take up the whole room in a way, because it's... Because they didn't take up the whole room. They didn't take up enough space. They didn't take up the space that they needed to take up. They're a part of the US visual um, history now, or, 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 or consciousness, but... But they they didn't have that weight, yeah. That and they didn't cause any real world change, and and it. I think it it makes me angry not just as an Arab, but it it just. I mean, it, it just set me on fire, and so I, I that was what I worked on, and then I moved on to immersive uh, theater. Um, I don't really like telling people what to think with my work um, but I do like to create uh, the environment and the opportunity to experience a different kind of narrative in a different way without having information shoved down your throat. I lived in the UK for a few years where I worked and studied and I was uh, developing my art practice there and I was um, I, I, I was a little bit uh, uh, thrown off by how racism wasn't really discussed uh, in a social way, but it was highly institutional. And uh, I've never been to the US, but my understanding is that racism is so blatant there that it's spoken about quite openly. Whereas in the UK, it's, you know, it's very insidious. 
It's very institutional. Yeah. It's very old. It's it's you know it's a really really it's a difficult thing, thing to broach with people. I think like in my experience, mm. um, it's a difficult thing to bring up with people because it means discussing the privilege of whiteness, and in liberal circles, it's increasingly being talked about. But there's a lot of resistance to that. Yeah, there's a lot of people that will behave like if you talk about whiteness in the UK um, that you're being too precious or too sensitive. Um, no, there, there is, um, you know, there are certain, also there have been, become certain ways of talking about it that can really uh, deviate from, from people of colour's narratives and really focus on, on white guilt, um, which is something else that I encountered um, mm -hmm. with, with, you know, working with a lot of white artists who wanted to work with, uh, you know, representing cultures pictorially that weren't necessarily their own or cultures of those who have been colonized by their own country or uh yeah so there was there was a there it's it's almost it's there there is something about whiteness i think where it feels like and i say whiteness as a i don't I'm not talking about white people i'm talking about whiteness as a concept where it's, it, it feels like it's um, entitled to even the narrative about race, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, so even the, the narrative about race and racism has to be controlled, even a liberal narrative about that uh, is still very much centred around whiteness and white guilt. Um, so I came across that a lot within liberal and anarchist and lefty circles, which I kind of like flirted with when I was a student in the UK. Um, especially, uh, come to think of it, um, uh, Palestine solidarity campaigns uh, that were run primarily by uh, older uh, white people. Uh, there was certainly uh, a desire to be front and centre uh, and, and, and kind of get a bunch of trophies for essentially taking on... Uh, a, uh, a cause that, you know, you don't need to take on. And so there's almost this, um, this it's a bit belligerent because it's like, well, I don't need to do this and I'm doing it anyway. So that makes me a, a super special pers white person. Right, so one thing we have not talked about yet is fetish. And that's actually, for me, that's a really, that's a really interesting question about um, fetish and sadomasochism in relation to the fact that you've also talked about torture in your work. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, a complex relationship that I'm sure a lot of people will be a little confused by. Right. So, a bit of background. Um, I've always had a vested, um, let's say academic, interest in sadomasochism. And... Um, I think it, it's been quite interesting coming into it as someone from an Arabic country, as someone who uh, is from Palestine, as someone who has that kind of um, historical and in, to some extent lived context of occupation, imprisonment and torture. And to go into something like play and performativity and the theater you're trying to 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 derive uh, some kind of like uh, uh, pleasure and you're trying to understand your own body and you're trying to 
to understand a different way of communicating by playing with those um, themes that are the very real lived experiences for a lot of people uh, is an interesting to co context to come into it from. I think it, it, it informs it in a way, I think it makes it a little bit riskier. It does put you in a position where um, you people will make a lot of assumptions about who you are and why you're doing it. And I think generally people make a lot of assumptions about any form of sexual dissidence, whether you're uh, queer, uh, whether you, um, it, you know, in, in this part of the world, if you do anything other than and, um, get married and have children to someone of your own um, religious background or social standing. So really, and if you're a woman, it's it's that much worse. And if you're a gay man, it's that much worse because people will come in with their assumptions about who you are and what you've been through. And when you are from a part of the world that has um, a lot of collective trauma or an ongoing uh, uh, political conflict or a lot of um, social uh, norms uh, that are related to religion and tradition, then you will you know, that's just an added thing that you're carrying with you and that's an added thing that allows people to project their assumptions and their opinions and their own trauma onto you. Um, and so living uh, and working and openly in the Middle East as uh, someone who is uh, has a non-normative sexuality and then including that in your work or your artistic practice um, can really pigeonhole you. You have to fight. You have to fight to have your... Uh, to, to be in control of your own narrative here. I've had to fight to be in control of my own narrative as an artist. I've had to fight to... whether it was in the West and um, under the... under, you know, be, the, the, the threat of being shunned um, for my uh, background, uh, under the threat of being fetishized or under the threat of not being taken seriously as a young woman uh, working with very big themes. Um, and it, it is a bit, it has been a bit difficult because a lot of these themes do go into my personal life. And that's kind of what I wanted to rhizomes again. We haven't really gone into rhizomes properly. No, I feel like but, we've entered the rhizome. Yeah. We're well into the rhizome. We're well Keep into going. the rhizomes. Keep yeah. walking into the rhizome. It's, it, you know, there's 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 layers to this for me. There is a lot of layers to this for me. There's there's I'm I'm interested in 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 uh, biogenetic uh, technologies and biosurveillance and how that is, uh, uh, you know, that that how that's being adopted in the Middle East and primarily in Israel. But I am interested in how it's being adopted. Uh, everywhere else, there is there is a there is a relate a physical relationship. There is a, a personal anger and rage because um, I can't travel freely. So that doesn't you know that it, it it is something that I have to deal with every time I want to leave the country, and and it is something that I have to deal with in the sense that I cannot live freely in the country where I um, spent most of my life in, which is Jordan. I cannot do my work there. It's uh, um, the art world there is heavily policed and any form of um, 
uh, um, outsider like I, provocative work like mine is quite provocative would be uh, considering it considered as inciting secretarian strife or indecency. It is the kind of thing you can be arrested for and it is the kind of thing that I've been warned about. And, and then going on to try to make this work in the West is uh, interesting because then it, it becomes, if, if there's, a, there's a, you know, a Western curator that has a particular narrative about women in the Middle East, then they will try to fit me into that narrative. So it is a constant fight because I'm talking about very specific things. And um, and I, I work collaboratively with other artists, and I've met some incredible artists um, since moving to Lebanon. Um, some of them are, are dear friends of mine who are also working in this really critical, really uh, interesting way. And they're working with issues like ecology and technology and feminism, like um, Amira Kawash. They're working with... Uh, uh, things like querying biosurveillance and and the idea of, of tracing and, and and mapping bodies in a non-normative way, like Nadim Shufi, um, and and they're not working within uh, like a, a cut and dry um, either Western or Arabic narrative for Arabic artists, you know, um, but it's still very uh, connected to the place that they're in. And it's still a very interesting narrative because they come from this background of, 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 of living in the Arabic world and, and dealing with these issues. So we started with the rhizome and I think we should end by returning to it. Um, we were having a conversation earlier about queerness and the rhizome and how they can relate to one another. And I was wondering if we could return to that. I think that um, if Arab queerness wants to be truly community-oriented, then it needs to be to operate in a rhizomatic and non-hierarchical way, uh, which means it needs to be malleable, it needs to um, be less defined in its goals. I think having defined goals is good for any community or organisation, but I think that that can really um, silence and even completely d disregard narratives that don't necessarily work in a productive way towards the end goals of that organisation. And um, I, I don't know how I feel about the term queer after living in the West because I feel like it has been taken in by the Western canon and it's become something that I don't necessarily uh, identify with. Um, and it's a very uh, uh, set way of doing things and it's, it's uh, almost packaged and sold. And I don't think that... What queerness means to me is not that. I think queerness needs to be progressive. Queerness needs to move forward. And um, whether it's happening here or it's happening in the West, uh, there is no room for adopting misogynistic, patriarchal, uh, biphobic, transphobic narratives, even if you're just starting out. That's not the way to start out. Um, I think that 
that we need to we need to think about community building in a more in a more rhizomatic way if uh, we're going to lead to uh, any form of um, of positive uh, change and that doesn't necessarily mean change that you can see on paper but it means a change a different way of being with each other a different way of um, communicating with each other a different way a critical way of approaching our own practices whether it's you know I think of the arts that's all I can speak of is just approaching the arts because in a critical way because it needs to it needs to be critical it needs to stay critical we need to continue to be critical we can't just think that we're you know re- we're not we can't we can't just think that we're the best at something we can't just continue to think that we are reached milestones and then that's the best we can do we have to keep changing we have to keep being humble and 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 changing the way we look at things to keep up with those new technologies to keep up with these new social issues with to keep up with um the politics of of the place that we're in I think what I what I want to do with my project Thicker Than Blood here is mostly to um, interrogate the current and rapid implementation of of, of um, biometric and data surveillance technologies and and state security systems and how those can structure and and influence the the, the daily lives of. Uh, people living here and people living under occupation and how that uh, changes the way we behave with each other, how that changes the way we approach education um, and and educational practices and community building practices. So, yeah, I think that that, that, is, that is kind of, of goes into uh, fluidity and, and rhizomes because you, you kind of, you want to be ever shifting, you want to be open to new ideas and you want to uh think in a less more experimental less uh, goal oriented way i think that's how i'm going to approach my practice from here on out if i've learned one thing from my time so far in beirut is that um in order to progress uh in a You know, even the word progress. You know, I'm still stuck in this in this hierarchical way. I think I think it's kind of putting putting less pressure on wanting to achieve certain goals and 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 more thinking about what you don't know and what is possible and and where those possibilities can take you. I think that is a lot more interesting. With special thanks to Izdihara Afuni. To find out more about her work, visit interventionistgod.com. Share your narrative. Email queernarrativesbeirut at gmail.com with your written or phone recorded stories and we'll publish them on our website. Anonymity guaranteed. Queer Narratives Beirut is a collaboratively produced word of mouth podcast made with support from Mansion and The Outpost magazine and produced alongside the Radio Mansion project in June 2018. Supported by Chase Consortium. Share your stories and find out more at queernarrativesbeirut.com.